Good morning, happy Sunday. I have NeuroCoffee in hand. This was a, a, an odd week with the holiday in the middle of it, so I overate, got uncomfortably full as usual. Um, so not a bad thing, but let's get to this week's Q&A. All right, so we had a lot of stuff going on. We uh, posted a bunch of stuff up on YouTube as usual. And so let me review that really, really quickly. So don't forget about the, the previous Q&A uh, from the 24th. That's up on YouTube. Um, how to use lifting belts as a teaching tool. So this came as a leftover from, from the previous week's Q&A. So that was a really, really interesting thing to talk about. We got the iFast podcast number four. So Mike Robertson and I are still cranking out those podcasts, especially if you're a business owner. Those are going to be really interesting for you. Um, and then today, Sunday... I posted a 20-some minute video in regards to uh, using the I's, T's, and Y's as a representation of how to avoid blindly prescribing exercises and why that might not be such a good thing and why we can't generalize. So that's a, a, a pretty powerful video. There's, there's a lot of segments in there that I think are, are very, very useful. So make sure you check that out. Up on Instagram, I also threw up the uh, weightlifting bell as a teaching tool on, on uh, Instagram TV. Uh, we talked about emphasizing the, the big rocks, so to speak, when it comes to your health. So, so doing things that promote a cascade of events that lead to good health, rather than trying to look at all the complexity and the minutia, um, emphasize the most important things like sleep, blood sugar control, stress resistance, and then recovery from stress. Um, we posted a couple of uh, techniques that we're using with our, our Terry project. So Terry came in to adjust his posture, if you will. Uh, he's a dancer and, and was very disappointed in his posturing and was failing in regards to the exercise program that he was using. And we'll go right back to picking on I's, T's, and Y's because that was the emphasis of his program that was altering his posture in a negative way. And so we posted a couple of uh, manual techniques there. Um, so you'll get to see actually the, the return on investment with Terry. And then, of course, we have the 16% videos as usual. So hopefully you're still enjoying those. So that's about it for the review as to what we went through this week on uh, social media and with the videos. And so let's get to this week's Q&A. Okay, my first uh, Q&A question uh, comes from, I believe, Eli at Saw Everything on Instagram. And uh, Eli asks, if I'm looking at an asymmetrical ISA, am I just looking at someone who's constantly turning right? Should I get them to turn left or focus on uniform expansion first? And so, yeah, you probably are looking at someone that, that is is making their, their, their right turn, but this is based on the expansion and compressive strategy that you're using. And if you're observing this through the thorax, you're also going to see it in the pelvis, but it's a little bit easier to see in the thorax. So let me get, grab my typical little thorax model so we can see this. So Eli, what you're looking at, if you're looking up inside the thorax there, so, so again, my stick is always representative of the spine, and I'm going to stabilize this, this uh, sternum for you. And what you're looking at is, is a shape change that looks like that. So as they turn, so they're there, so this is a right turn so you're going to see the shape change in the thorax and so then your goal is to reestablish their ability to do that as well and so really if you look at it from a strategy standpoint um, you're going to pass through that middle range anyway and, and so um, 
really what you're not looking to do is, is to create the uniform expansion. You're just trying to get them all the way to the other end of the turn so they can turn in both directions um, in, in a, a fairly equal manner. Although there's always going to be the bias of being a human um, from the asymmetrical forces standpoint that we all deal with on the inside. And, and so, again, I think that your, your perception of what you should be doing since you asked this question is, yes, you do need to get them to be able to, to, to reorient their, their thorax, alter the compressive and expansive strategies to allow them to turn fully in the opposite direction. So, so I think that, that uh, your perception is correct, young man, so, so keep working on that. So I have a question from Movement Panacea 101. And uh, his question is about thoracic outlet syndrome. It, it, he says, uh, do you assess the ISA in people with thoracic outlet syndrome? Usually they're scapularly depressed and they have a decreased uh, thoracic kyphosis, which would be indicative of, of a wide ISA. That's not necessarily true, young man. So, so um, we'll, we'll talk about that here in just a second. Um, I've never heard anyone assessing it as part of the treatment. So it'd be nice if you could expand on that a little bit. And so when we look at the ISA, we're not using it as part of any diagnosis other than the fact that it's going to be an indicator of what the compensatory breathing strategies will be. So someone will be biased towards an exhaled uh, axial skeleton and then they'll use an inhalation compensatory strategy or vice versa where I have an inhaled axial skeleton and I use a, uh, an exhalation compensatory strategy. But when we're talking about thoracic outlet specifically, what we're looking at is the area of the rib cage from above the second rib and above T4 in the back. So this is sort of like if you looked at the cap on the, on the thorax, this would be that area there. And so you're looking at a compressive strategy, primarily anterior, where you're pulling the manubrium down as an exhalation com compensatory strategy. And in doing so, we reduce the space between the clavicle and the upper rib cage. And so, so that's where that compression takes place. That's where you lose the full excursion of the neurovasculature that comes from the neck and in the upper quarter down into the upper extremity. And so then the way to alleviate that is obviously to reverse these, these compensatory strategies. So what the ISA is, is it leads me in it to determine what the sequence of compensatory strategies will be because if I have a narrow then they tend to use a predominant anterior compressive strategy first and then move to the posterior compressive strategy whereas the wides will start with a posterior compressive strategy and then move anterior. Ultimately though, if, if I had a wide with a thoracic outlet problem or a narrow with a thoracic outlet problem, they're at about the same level of compensatory strategy because it does involve the same structures of, of the manubrium and then the influence on the position of the clavicle which creates the compressive strategy between the upper rib cage and, and, the, and, and the clavicle itself. And so, so again, ultimately the reason that you would, you would want to identify uh, the ISA dynamics is to determine where, where you are on these compensatory strategies and then that determines what intervention I'll use to alleviate and try to restore this full excursion of breathing so I don't have to rely on a compensatory strategy that's causing the compression in the first place. So again, that's why I would use the ISA. I don't use it as a particular diagnosis. If it became a shoulder pain, neck pain, or hip pain, I would still be looking at the ISA because it's going to lead me in the direction of what compensatory strategies you're using that's creating this compressive strategy in the first place. So my next question uh, is a real common one that I get all the time, uh, and it's from 420 J-Rod, and he asks, what is the origin of the 16%? The so 
quite simply, the 16% are the people that I am speaking to. So these are the people that would be in the audience that, that either enjoy or utilize the information that, that I am offering. So I'm only speaking to those people. So, so people that are outside of that group typically won't be concerned with what I have to say, and that's okay. Um, I, I, am, I have no concerns over that. Um, it's, I'm trying to help a certain sect of people get better as I try to get better myself. And so if there's information that I can provide that they can utilize to help them improve whatever processes that, that they're utilizing, whatever profession they may be in, then, then hopefully you know that, that sect will, will benefit. And so that's who I'm talking to. It's just a very specific group of people, hopefully um, 420, that you're uh, 420, a little concerned there, brother. Um, hopefully you're in that group, you're finding benefit to the information, and you're able to utilize that to, to the best of your ability. So hopefully that answers that question again. So uh, Tim has our next question, and he's sort of asking a follow-up to last week where we were talking about pelvic orientation and, and how we can have certain presentations that give us a certain amount of hip internal rotation and such. And so, so uh, Tim says, follow-up on the question from last week. Um, why, is, why is the posterior pelvis, which starts in an inhaled orientation, exhaled? Why does the entire pelvis orient anteriorly secondary to the compression of thorax? So he's got more to, more to say here, but let me, um, <clears throat> let, me, let me just attack these two, two first. Okay, so if I have normal respiration, normal breathing pattern, the, the pelvis will expand and compress totally normally. We will have no compensatory strategies. We would be able to access a, a full extremity range of motion. But if I, if for whatever reason, I need to utilize a compensatory breathing strategy, I will have to change the shape of the pelvis and I will have to find ways to inhale and exhale against whatever strategy I may be using. And so when you ask, um, why is the posterior pelvis, which starts in an inhaled position, exhaled? I have to find a way to get air out. And so the compensatory strategies behave in an alternating fashion. It's much easier to see in the thorax because we have more space, but because the gradients are so narrow in the pelvis, they all tend to seem to occur at the same, same time. But if I consider the inhaled position of, of the pelvis with, with counter-nutation of the sacrum, uh, if, if I use a compensatory strategy anywhere, I will have, eventually have to find a way to exhale, which means I will have to be able to push that, that sacrum from counter-nutation towards nutation to be able to, to exhale uh, effectively. And again, sounds very dramatic, but this is literally how we have to behave to keep ourselves alive so we can continue, continue to breathe. What, and the second part of that question is, is why does the entire pelvis orient anteriorly secondary to compression of the thorax? So as I compress the, the thorax, so this is well above the, the pelvis, I will have an anterior movement. So if I, if I take the, the posterior thorax, which would normally be expanded, and I push it forward in an exhale fashion, so I'm compressing the posterior thorax, I get an anterior shift of the center of gravity. Well, if my feet are anchored to the ground, which they typically are, then as the thorax shifts forward, I will have to compensate and, and the pelvis will eventually follow. So, so I can resist some of this to an extent, but un unless I'm going to use another superficial compressive strategy um, that would sway the pelvis under, and that does happen, but it's much later in the compensatory sequence, um, 
then typically what I would do is, is my, my earlier compensatory strategy would be to compress the posterior aspect of the pelvis and it will orient forward just as I have compressed the thorax and that has shifted forward. So again, I get this forward shift of the center of gravity because my, my hip joint and, and my lower extremity are anchored, the pelvis is gonna tip forward with it. So Tim continues, if an anterior pelvic orientation yields a mess of hip IR, so again, we have to be pretty far forward for it to get a lot of hip IR. What's the situation of the wide powerlifting type folk that live in anterior orientation, yet they, they have a, a zero IR? Well, this is great. This is actually a really, really cool question. So here, Tim, we're talking about a massive amount, and we're talking about a really good powerlifter. We're talking about a massive amount of compressive strategy. So, so my ability to produce force against massive loads demands that I create internal pressures of significant magnitude, which means I need a massive amount of compression. And so what powerlifters end up doing is they compress the anterior posterior pelvis rather aggressively. And this increases the concentric orientation of superficial musculature on the anterior aspect and the posterior aspect of the pelvis. And so then the resultant is, is that I, I compress the hip joints straight into the hip socket. So oftentimes you'll see them lose a tremendous amount of external rotation and internal rotation. So let me give you a for instance. So I had a really high level powerlifter come in and his total hip excursion was roughly 25 to 30 degrees and he was biased into external rotation to such a severe degree that under normal circumstances based on the, on the, the typically taught zero point, he had minus five degrees hip IR. And, and so that's typically why you see that. So they are anteriorly oriented. They are nutated to begin with. They are compressed. And so this is very, very deep into a compensatory strategy that is a performance enhancement for lifting heavy things. And so it's not something that we typically re recommend for health, but this should give you an idea or representation of why you see that type of measurement on, on the, the really high level power lifters. So Tim actually has a, a third parter here that we'll go ahead and answer. And he asks, in a perfect world, do we start at the first compensation? Teach the wides to, to, to exhale. So that's a compensatory inhalation strategy if they're a wide ISA. So, so he wants to know if we teach the wides to exhale and do we teach the narrows to inhale? And I would say yes, because what we need, Tim, is a dynamic ISA, which would be representative of the ability to move the diaphragm. So if we can't move the diaphragm, into an inhaled or exhaled position, it becomes very, very difficult to change anything else. And a lot of times, just by getting the ISA to move dynamically, getting more excursion of the, of the thoracic diaphragm and the pelvic diaphragm, we see a lot of good things happen. So a lot of times uh, on, on the, the first intervention, you'll see a lot of changes in regard to how much internal and external rotation you can recapture in both the, the hip and the shoulder just by in your intention being to get the ISA to move much more effectively. So yes, you, you would go there first. So my next question comes from Drew. Drew is, is really good about being consistent week to week with, with his questions and, and I do enjoy answering his questions because he always works the word keen into it and I love the word keen. Um, so Drew asks, I think you link concentric exhale bias strategies with weightlifter strength hypertrophy, but I also thought training eccentric, I, I would imagine training eccentrically improves strength. I think my question is, is can you bias your training towards eccentric inhalation biased exercises to improve movement variability and still improve strength hypertrophy? 
Okay, so it's not that eccentric orientation doesn't occur at all. It's just that the bias, whenever you're trying to increase force output or increase hypertrophy through the, the typical loading adaptations will be biased towards an exhalation strategy because to lift heavier things, which we all need to gain more muscle, I have to be able to increase my internal pressure which would be a concentric exhaled strategy. So can you train eccentrically to gain movement uh, options and still improve strength and hypertrophy? Maybe to a certain degree, but it will never be maximal or the extreme. So if you think about, let's take the, the best bodybuilders in the world who are very, very extreme, and you look at the shape of their bodies. So they're very, very compressed anterior and posterior, and they get very, very wide. So that's, so it's not that the lats get wider, it's that the thorax gets compressed. And so if I squish the, the, the thorax front to back, I gotta squish them out the side. So that's how power lifters and bodybuilders actually get wider as they compress using the superficial musculature that gets hypertrophied and, and gains its capacity to increase its intramuscular pressure so it can compress the thorax. So that's how that happens. If I was to try to maintain my ability to expand anteriorly and posteriorly, I might not be able to produce as much internal pressure. Therefore, I might not be able to lift as much weight and therefore I might not gain as much hypertrophy. It doesn't mean that you can't gain any. It just means that that might become a limiting factor. So there's probably somebody out there that falls at, at one end of this imaginary normal curve that can do it all. They can maintain all of their mobility. They can maintain their anterior posterior expansion and still gain massive amounts of hypertrophy. But I think they're the exception to the rule. So we have to respect the fact that, that there are outliers, but they are not representative of the normal population, nor are they typical. And so I would say under normal circumstances, typical circumstances, if you try to maintain full movement capabilities, that you will, you will actually limit your ability to produce force, so you will limit your strength ultimately, you will limit your hypertrophy development, but that doesn't mean that you don't perform well um, under sporting circumstances and so forth. It just means that, that if you were to try to take it to the extreme, you'll probably have to give something up as a secondary consequence um, in return for uh, whatever hypertrophy and strength you desire. And Drew came back with the second question. Uh, regarding your box squat video, I think you mentioned that you would dive deeper into this exercise. If you do, I'm definitely very keen, thanks Drew, to learn about learn more about how you bias it for wide ISA clients. So wide ISA clients tend to be an exhale, an exhaled axial skeleton with, a, with an inhalation compensatory strategy. So let's just talk about the pelvic diaphragm for a second. So if I have an exhaled pelvic diaphragm that's concentrically oriented and it would be elevated. And so typically what I would use with a box squat is I wanna recapture some of the ability to eccentrically orient that pelvic diaphragm for whatever reason, whether to be gaining some level of mobility or to improve explosiveness where they may have given up some of that because of the extreme concentric orientation. And so the real simple answer here is I'm going to select an activity that will bias me towards inhalation from the get-go. So maybe I'm using a Zercher uh, squat where, where I can maintain more of an inhalation strategy, or maybe I'm just simply using a goblet orientation that again biases me towards inhalation before I even begin the squat. And then I'm going to increase the delay on the box. And so when I'm talking about the delay on the box, I'm not talking about extremes, we're talking about 
split seconds here. Um, and then again, I, I might emphasize the, the inhalation strategy on the box depending on loads. I would never use this, this technique under extreme loads, but I might have them sit to the box and then take the inhale while they're there. And then an exhale as they move towards the, the sit to stand portion of the exercise. So again, there's a lot of ways that you can bias this if my goal is to restore the eccentric capabilities of the pelvic diaphragm or to overcome the compensatory inhalation strategy. Uh, but again, I would bias them, I would try to bias them towards inhalation uh, from the get-go by position. So again, there's lots of ways that we can modify the box squat depending on what our specific needs are or the intervention that we desire. And that's one of the reasons why I love that exercise so much. Okay, we got a question from Tyler Wall. So Tyler asked, do fascial lines even matter when it comes to assessing an individual and our programming? And so I don't think a lot about, about fascia in and of itself as some sort of isolated structure because the way I always perceive the body is that, is that you're mostly water and a little bit of stuff and all that stuff is made of the same stuff. And so what we are looking at though, Drew, is that we're looking at helical orientation. So that's one of the reasons why the ISA becomes really, really handy because it represents the helical orientation of the axial skeleton. Um, so that angle and, and the musculature that would attach to it gives us a representation of, of what angles would be ideal for improving or restoring rotation. We also have superficial helical angles that are associated with the, with the bigger muscles that we all tend to see. So we're talking about trapezius and lats and pecs and rectus abs and adductors and glute max. And, and the like. And so, so those muscles also have helical angles, but we're not looking at it from a fascial line perspective per se. We're just looking at it as a, as a helical orientation. So the helical orientations continue out into the extremities all the way to your fingertips. And so that's what we're really looking at. We're not looking at fascial planes because if you strip away the muscle fibers, you tend to see that everything is, is all interconnected. Um, and so, so we're, what we're, again, what we're looking at is how do all of these helices interact to produce the compressive and expansive strategies. So I would never isolate out one element of the anatomy because these helical orientations go down into the level of the bones as well. So if you look at the trabeculi um, at the end of the long bones, like the, the femur always gets a, a great representation there, you'll see the helical orientations there. And that's just a continuation of the helical orientations of the other tissues. So again, uh, Drew, I think it's a great question because I don't think we need to pay attention to these things in isolation. I think what we need to do is look at the relationships of how all of these parts interact to produce expansive and compressive strategies because that's ultimately how we move. Our last question for this week's Q&A comes from Misha. Misha, could you please go over in more detail how the anterior-posterior compression of the pelvis restricts hip motion? Absolutely, I can. I'd be happy to. Um, Misha, I would also, before I dive into this with the pelvis, I would say that, that uh, the exact same process occurs in the thorax. It's really easy to see in the thorax um, because the, the, the distance that the gradients travel in, in the, the thorax for the compensatory strategies are just much easier to see. So we got a lot more time per se for, for these uh, uh, transitional strategies. In the pelvis, the gradients are very, very narrow. So let me show you what I mean. I'm gonna grab my pelvis here. So if we look at, if we look at the front of my pelvis and we look at the, 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 the pubis here, so there's my pubic symphysis. 
between my two fingers there. And then if I was to look at my sternum, my sternum is, is that wide. So again, I have more distance to cover with my inhalation, exhalation gradients. And so what happens in the pelvis is that these transitions occur very, very quickly to the point where they almost seem to be simultaneous. They are occurring simultaneously just to different degrees. But again, I would, I would encourage you to look at the compensatory strategies as they evolve in the thorax because it's just much easier to see and then just translate that to the pelvis. Since you asked about the pelvis, we will go ahead and we will run through that. And so if I am, am utilizing a compensatory breathing strategy that, that promotes a compressive force on the, on the front side of the pelvis, what's going to happen is I will lose, I will lose internal rotation uh, capabilities at the hip. Reason being is if I compress the front, that means that, that the volume that comes down in the pelvis will be biased posteriorly. So I get expansion here. Now, if you look straight down in the pelvis, and this is a plastic model that doesn't move, the pelvis actually changes shape. When I push more volume into the pelvis, it will change shape. So if I have a compressive strategy here, I get an elongation in this direction of the pelvis. That changes the orientation of, of the muscle fibers that attach posterior to the trochanter. And so what happens is, is they pick up concentric orientation. So I get eccentric orientation in the front, concentric orientation in the back. And so what happens when I, when I compress the front and expand the back, I pick up ER and I lose the IR. Because if I have eccentric orientation here, I have a fluid volume in the front part of the hip joint that I cannot move into. I cannot compress that fluid because I have concentric orientation on the backside. Now, if I reverse gears and I say I have a posterior compressive strategy, which means that I'm gonna push the volume into the anterior part of the pelvis, what's gonna happen there is I'm gonna pick up concentric orientation on the front side of the hip and I'm gonna gain internal rotation because on the backside of the hip, because of the compressive strategy, or um, yeah, because of the compressive strategy here, I changed the shape of the pelvis. So now I get a, a widening of, of the pelvis here that increases the length of the muscle fibers on the backside of the hip. And so now what happens is I have an eccentric orientation here. I have a volume expansion here and I can't move into that into extra rotation. And so what happens is I get pushed in this direction by the concentric strategy here, eccentric strategy here, and it turns inward. Typically what you're gonna see under most circumstances, again, because these gradients are, are, are occurring very, very quickly because they, they typically present um, visually and, and from a measurement standpoint, they're gonna present from the bottom up, okay, as I fill up the pelvis like a glass of water with, with the volume that comes down you're gonna see a lot of these strategies occur simultaneously. So that's why it becomes very, very important for us to distinguish between you know, how much ER and IR capabilities we have. So we know where the compressive strategies are, we know where you're capable of expanding if you are, and then we know what kind of a shape change that we have to the pelvis that we have to intervene with to make the physical changes. So do I need to create more expansion? Do I have to restore the inhalation capabilities of the pelvis? Or do I need to increase the compressive strategy of the pelvis to overcome uh, the, the limitations that are demonstrated in the hip joint? So hopefully, Misha, that answers your question. If I was unclear, then please ask that question again and we will try to go through it again next time. Um, that's all I have from a Q&A standpoint for this week. So hopefully you have a great week. Um, check us 
check me out. I shouldn't say check us. I'm the only one here. So check me out on Instagram because I will be there all next week and we'll be throwing up videos on the YouTube channel as well. If you have any special requests as to what you would like to see on YouTube or on Instagram, please throw those up on, on those platforms as well. Or you get to email me directly at ask billhartman at gmail.com askbillhartman at gmail.com and I will ask or I will answer your questions on on that platform as well.